Hello, I'm Dr. Lucy McBride, and welcome to my office. This is Beyond the Prescription, a show where I talk with people who are at the top of their fields about their health, their success, their struggles, and the relationship between all of it. I'm a primary care doctor in DC and a mom of three. In my over 20 years of practice, I've realized that patients are much more than the sum total of their cholesterol and their weight. That health is about much more than the absence of disease. So let's get into it and go beyond the prescription. As a mom of three myself, I've been looking forward so much to talking to today's guest, Amy Chua. Amy is a brilliant legal scholar, a lawyer, professor, and writer. She clerked in the U.S. Court of Appeals, worked on Wall Street, and made it on the international bestsellers list as an author. Perhaps she's most well-known for her highly popular novel, The Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mother, in which she breaks down her unique and sometimes controversial approach to parenting. Amy was previously named one of Time's most influential people, and she's no stranger to success, controversy, and today we'll talk about how stress, success, struggle have brought her to where she is today. So I'm thrilled to talk to you today, Amy. Thank you for joining me. It's great to be here, Lucy. Thanks for having me. Let's talk about Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mother, because that fascinated me when it came out in 2011. You described your sort of very strict parenting style that I think was rooted in your parents' parenting style for you. They were Chinese immigrants and believed in hard work, to say the least, in perhaps sort of this combination, if you will, of love and pride in their culture meets intense, intense hard work that caused your critics to call you verging on a child abuser. And so I'd love to talk about your parenting and that book and what that experience taught you, because to me, you're really a role model in, in a lot of ways. And we'll, we'll talk about that as we move forward. Well, thank you. It's, it's great to be here. Um, you know, it's funny in a strange way, the whole thing was a big accident, <laughs> um, so I am the oldest of four daughters and have always been incredibly overconfident. I was like daddy's girl. Um, so my parents were super strict immigrants, but they also instilled in me a huge amount of confidence. So I actually wrote uh, Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mother, believe it or not, in a moment of crisis. And people just don't understand this. Like I, I think you mentioned, um, you called it a novel. Other people have called it like a parenting screed. Some people have called it a how-to book, but it's really, um, it's actually a memoir. And I wrote it when my younger daughter at age 13 completely rebelled against my super strict parenting. So the way it all starts is just as you say, I had very strict parents who were immigrants from Asia, but it worked, Lucy. Like when I was little, I hated the way it felt. It's like we had all these rules. We had to get straight A's, you know, no play dates, no sleepovers. After school, we'd have to come straight home and drill math and Chinese and, you know, no parties and no high heels. But fast forward, I would say today, my three younger sisters and I all are incredibly grateful to the kind of tough love way that my parents raised us. So I kind of entered this whole parenting thing very, very cocky. My husband, who's a Jewish American, was really anxious about it. He didn't know what, which approach to do. My friends were like that. But I kind of felt like, you know what? I'm just going to do exactly what my parents did. 
because it worked for all of us. And in a way, this memoir is about how you just cannot replicate the immigrant experience because it's not really just about Asian parenting. The way I was raised is a very typical immigrant story. You know, my parents came over, they didn't know if they could survive in this country. They didn't have much money. So education was kind of like their only security blanket. And when they said to me, if you don't get straight A's, you could be out on the streets. Um, they actually meant it, you know, and I believed it. That was their reality. And so they were doing what they thought was right and what is not uncommon. I, I remember you saying that at one of your interviews that you had a lot of critics, but you had a lot of people saying, thank you so much. This is my experience. This is what I experienced as a child. This is what people don't talk about enough. So, I mean, to me, you were you were just being brutally honest. Yeah. And it's a slice of America that's often hidden because, uh, you know, one immigrant friend of mine called it closet parenting because you can't admit it in this kind of, you know, mainstream Western parenting. This It is definitely an outlier. But anyway, what happened to me is my first daughter, Sophia, only made me more overconfident because she was an easy kid and everything I did, you know, she kind of listened to. And I thought, geez, this parenting thing is easy. You just have to, you just have to, you know, have some spine. And then I had my second daughter, Lulu, three years later. And oh my gosh, I mean, talk about fate and my comeuppance. I mean, this is a kid that was born saying no. Even when I was pregnant with her, she was kicking up a storm. I know you're a doctor, so it sounds like an exaggeration, but I think she had colic for like three years, you know? <laughs> I mean, she 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 wouldn't turn over. She wouldn't do anything. And from the very beginning, she said, I want to grow up to be a witch, or then it was like a, you know, a garbage man, and I don't want to go to school. And so two-thirds of the book is actually kind of funny. It's about how I tried to apply this strict immigrant parenting style to her and how she kind of outsmarted me every way. Um, but I will say I still believe in it. I mean, I actually think now that it was more important, um, my strict parenting with my younger daughter than with my older daughter, because I think she would have been fine anyway. But what happened was when my daughter Lulu turned 13, everything changed. Suddenly things were not funny. And this is part of a larger universal story of children having to separate from their parents. But she basically just started to hate me. You know, I mean, she was so angry. She cut her own hair off. She uh, she didn't want to play the violin. She didn't want to go to school. And at the same time, my younger sister got leukemia and had to have a bone marrow transplant. And I actually started writing the book in a moment of total darkness when, believe it or not, we were in Red Square, Moscow. And Lulu and I got into a huge screaming fight. She threw a glass, it broke. Everyone was staring at me and it just hit me. Oh my God, you know, this is not funny anymore. Like I could actually lose this kid forever, you know? And, and at that point, I remembered that my own father was a rebel in his family. He actually left his family and never turned back. Like he was the black sheep. So it was this moment of kind of this inundation of, self-criticism and honesty. I was like, wait a minute, you know, you really need to think about this. And I, I changed a lot, not totally, but that's when I started writing the book and it was very cathartic. I showed my daughters every page. Uh, so that's actually how the book got written. And like I said, you know, it took me just three months to write the first two thirds of it. Whereas my other academic books, you know, it was like five years of intense research. This was a totally different creature. Well, it sounds like it It was coming directly from your heart and it was coming directly from your own experience. And so, you know, it's so interesting to hear that, you know, you describe yourself as being raised to be an ox, right? Like you never had a headache. You never had a flu. You, you were tough stuff. 
never sick. Never sick. And I was rewarded for that. And I was rewarded for that. You know, my dad would say, Amy's like an ox, you know, where she can carry like 60 pounds. I'm a short person, but I could carry like a hundred pounds. And um, yes, I, you know, I, I didn't never got colds. When other people got the flu, I didn't get it. And I was raised to be really proud of that and to, to be very stoic about pain. And we could get to that later. I think it, it came out, this book, at such a moment where I think parents were starting to wonder in the United States and the Western world, like, wow, maybe we've gone too far in kind of the everyone gets a trophy for participation kind of mentality. Sort of this the more permissive style of American parenting, like the snowplow parenting where people just sort of take away the barriers to their kids, you know, success at the expense of the kids learning the hard way, which is basically the definition of life. And so we see this in the medical literature and the literature in parenting in general, that people need need to fail and they need to pull themselves up and learn through experience and getting things wrong. Um, at the same time, you know, we are all born with a different set of vulnerabilities and some kids are more sensitive. Some kids are born resilient. And so, you know, that sort of the idea of like a one size fits all parenting style is, is I think what people were reacting against. But what's interesting to me on top of that is that, you know, you were so stoic, you were this ox so healthy and successful and applied to a hundred law schools, got rejected a hundred times and then got in. And like your dad said, of course, you're going to keep trying. Like what's a hundred law schools. Um, and then you have this moment where yeah, that was for teaching. Yeah. That was on the teaching market. I was rejected you know, on the academic market by a hundred law schools. <laughs> so I was an adult and I, I couldn't believe that. I, I called my dad. I was like, I don't think I'm cut out to be a professor, dad, because I just got a hundred rejections. And it was amazing. He was like, wait, wait a second, Amy, let me understand this. You got a hundred rejections and you want to quit? Like he thought that was a very small number, you know, and he was right. And it's amazing that you didn't, you know, buckle then. Um, and then you have this moment where you're in Moscow and your parenting style is sort of backfiring, right? Your daughter is is sort of melting down. And, and so talk to me about that, what it feels like to have the paradigm with which you were raised and that you're, then you end up writing about sort of backfire and what that felt like as a, as a person, as, as a human being yourself. Yeah. You know, you kind of summed it up very well, the two lessons. Of course, I didn't write the book to be a how-to guide. It was just kind of my story. But I'll say two things that might sound contradictory. The first is even now with all my mistakes and even with the meltdown and the change of heart, I still am a kind of a proud, strict mom in a sense that I do believe that the only way to really instill you know, real grit, real inner strength and self-esteem is by having the kid earn it themselves. I mean, gosh, I would, I would love it. It's so much, I'm a type A person. If I could just, if I could have just told my daughters, you're amazing, you're perfect. And then have them believe that I would have, that would have been great. So I actually think that Western parents do often let their kids give up too quickly. That's something I still believe in because it might feel good, you know, like, oh, they're so unhappy playing the violin and they want to switch to the flute. And then, oh, they're unhappy with that too. Let's switch to something else. We're always looking for their passion. One of my favorite lines in Battle Hymn is that nothing is fun until you're good at it, you know? So I think that there, there is something worthwhile about just forcing your kids sometimes to just stick to it a little bit more. So that I stand by. But the other piece that's maybe contradictory is exactly what you were saying. Like I had to learn the hard way 
that every kid is so different. My daughter, Lulu, she just had this completely different personality. She just was naturally rebellious. I don't know why I forced her to do the violin. She's incredibly social. She, it was completely the wrong instrument. And I think that's one downside of quote unquote Asian parenting or immigrant parenting. It's not very individually tailored. <laughs> you know, it is a little bit one size fits all. Um, and I did learn that. I mean, I completely went cold turkey after that fight in Moscow. Um, and then we went through a process of like renegotiation, you know, for the next five years. Um, and I think it, I think it came out great, but nothing is harder than parenting, Lucy. I could not agree with you more. It is like the exercise, the ultimate exercise in humility. It's like you get your ass handed to you on a platter every single day. <laughs> it's the ultimate exercise in acceptance. And I think we have to learn at some point in our lives that we can't control the uncontrollable. And there's nothing like having children to remind us that we don't have control over the universe, nor should we. In fact, as a mom of three kids, one's in college, one's a senior in high school, one's in, in a sophomore in high school, like I, I, I've learned so much from them by letting them be who they are. At the same time, I couldn't agree with you more that struggle is essential. Not that we want to have our kids struggle, but it's, it's an essential part of life. The question about the, the the hardest part in parenting to me is knowing when to hold them and knowing when to fold them, right? Like knowing when it's appropriate to offer added support and knowing when you should step back and let them fail and struggle. Exactly. Especially, yeah. And because they're very, very cunning and crafty. They can read you and play oh, you too. Oh yeah. <laughs> my kids, my kids can smell an agenda from a mile away. Same. And on those lines, you astutely said, you know, you cannot gift your child with self-esteem, not to speak for for all parents, but I think it's probably pretty universally true that that most parents want their kids to be happy and successful and have self-esteem and be self-actualized and have healthy relationships and all of those things. It's a question not of the end desired result. It's really how do you get there? And I guess I'd be interested to hear how you have reflected on your own life and your own health. I guess I'd be interested in hearing how you're sort of reckoning with the wild success of this book and controversy around it and thinking through your own parenting and thinking through your stoicism and then realizing you, you're you human like, like all of us, right? You have vulnerabilities, even though your parents expected you to get a, a hundred on the test and asked you what, where the other point was when you got a 99. I mean, you're still vulnerable. You're still human like everybody else. So I guess I wonder how did you end up where you are today, where your class at Yale has an enormous waiting list. You mentor and nurture other students. So there's something to that. You're not just a tiger mother, as far as I can tell. Yeah. So you know, I have so many things to say about this. First, back to my own parents. I have this one um, strange story, you know, maybe this is not to be copied, but when I was uh, maybe seven, um, I was the only Asian kid in my whole school. And there was a guy named Jeremy. Um, I still remember his name. I pronounced the word, I had a strong Chinese accent back then. And I pronounced the word restaurant wrong. I said restaurant. And then after that, this kid ran around on the playground making slanty eyes saying, ha, 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 restaurant, restaurant, you know, and this just basically what we, you know, being a bully. 
And I remember coming home to my mom, I must've been in third grade and telling my mom about this and you will not believe her reaction. You're going to be horrified, but (laughs) stick with me. She was furious, but not at the kid. She was mad at me. Um, And what she said was, Amy, you know, if this stupid boy, you know, he doesn't know, and here comes the non sequitur. We come from the oldest, most magnificent civilization. You know, China invented everything. Um, And if this stupid boy can't see that, why would you waste one second, you know, even thinking about him? Now, that may sound crazy, but it turns out I later for another book I did um, discovered and researched that this is actually, um, it's a thing. (laughs) Uh, Immigrant parents kind of um, giving their children a sense of, enormous ethnic pride or just, you know, pride in their ancestral heritage as a kind of psychological shield or armor against discrimination. So that's that the reason I mentioned that is I was, you know, it wasn't just being strict, my parents, they, from the very beginning, they, in a way, taught me how to be proud of being an outsider. Like I was never raised to feel like a victim and Yes, sometimes it's hard. Like I have to say, that wasn't the greatest day when I feel horrible and bullied at school and my mom is mad at me, you know. Um, And I do think this is one of these, don't try this at home. I'm not saying, hey, everybody do this. Absolutely not. But every once in a while, if you titrate it just right, because, you know, my mom and dad were always conveying unconditional love. That's, That's kind of like goes without saying. And if you were to ask me what is like the most important thing, of parenting for anyone, I'd say, find a way to convey unconditional love. And that is very culturally contingent. You know, people, my parents never once said, I love you. I don't even know how that would translate in Chinese. Like nobody does that. Nobody says that. Um, And yet it was absolutely clear to me, you know, whereas in other households, they say it all the time. It just doesn't, it's not absorbed. It's not conveyed. I think it's such a good point that, that like, that style of parenting in particular wouldn't really hold water, nor would you be as close to your parents and your siblings as, as you are today if love wasn't the glue. And and I just want to break down that moment for a minute when your mom is blaming you for this kid basically bullying you and, and, and issuing racial slurs. I mean, you know, if you put that up on Twitter, let's say, for example, a lot of people would say, wow, she, she's victim blaming. Not that you would ever put it on Twitter, nor, as you just said, are you recommending this style of parenting? Um, but in a way, I, I, I know what she's saying. She's she's trying to protect you and she's trying to help you have appropriate boundaries with what you are going to take in and not take. In other words, you know, the expression, what other people think of you is none of your business. I mean, it is your business in, the, in, in, in that that is hurtful and that is racial and ethnic discrimination. At the same time, if you internalize that and, you know, even today, right, we, we see so much racial, ethnic and, and just in general discrimination against others, um, you wouldn't get out of bed in the morning if you took that all in. Yeah, and exactly. And, you know, I think that what I was feeling then is so low, like a, like just, you know, he belittled me and I internalized that. I came home, I felt terrible about myself. And in a not very, <laughs> uh, you know, Western way, my mom was kind of saying, you're better than him. Like, who cares? You know, you're, you're, you're stronger. You don't need to. Um, and I think it was her own way of giving me confidence and strength. And um, yeah, I have tons of stories like that, um, which again, I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend to be replicated, um, but there's a lot of subtext 
Um, and I think that's what's interesting about talking about different parenting styles. Like, it, it, there, it's like a lot gets lost in the translation, I think, you know, because people have very different cultural styles. Yeah, even the translation of your book actually in, in Chinese, right, was like Yale lawyer tells you how to parent, which is actually not at all what the book was, but it was the it was the literal translation that was a complete misrepresentation. But I think in, in our primitive brains as human beings, we, we like to sort, we like to assume, we like to label. It's sort of the way we cope in a way. And so I think there are a lot of people who think Amy Chua equals tiger mother. But you described to me this moment of intense vulnerability uh, when you faced a medical issue that I think was really a reckoning for you. Not that you didn't realize you were a human before that, but I'd love to talk about that. Yeah, this is, it's amazing um, how you learned these life lessons so late in life. So in 2018, basically everything collapsed for me. Um, I'm not kidding. I've never, I was unbearable. You know, my parent, my kids were like, just, I was so unsympathetic when anybody had a cold because I was never sick. But then in 2018, uh, I had a freak medical thing happen to me. Um, I taught my first uh, class of the semester and I had like 104 fever, but I was like, oh, come on, you know, just like add down the Advil. But the next morning I woke up and I was in such excruciating pain that I almost passed out and I got rushed to the hospital. And basically I was in there for a week. And after a week, I had eight tubes in me. Um, my organs were failing and nobody could figure out what was wrong with me. And the whole time the doctors kept asking, on a scale of one to 10, how much pain would you say you're experiencing? And I don't know. I think this is a woman thing too, you know, but I, I didn't want to say. 10, even though it felt like that. So I, I would say, you know, four, you know, but when they, when they finally opened me up, they discovered a two centimeter hole in my colon. Um, fortunately it wasn't because of cancer. It was like diverticulitis or something. Basically you're, you had an infected diverticula, one of these little out pouches of the colon that burst. And then you're calling it a four out of 10. It, it went everywhere. Like one of my lungs collapsed. It was approaching my heart. I, I, it, it was, it was horrible. Um, and I ended up staying in the hospital for three weeks, lost all my hair, came out in a wheelchair. Uh, I had a colostomy. I'm very open about that. Yeah. It's basically where you, they had to take off part of your colon, the part that was that was burst and infected, and then attach it to the outside of your skin, of your body. That's a very humbling experience. Yes. I went to the bathroom, now a different way, you know, through a bag, which is a shock for somebody who'd never been sick. Um and I also, I couldn't even walk. I've always been a runner, a jogger, a swimmer. I couldn't even walk to the end of my driveway, you know? Um, and that was one of the weirdest stages of my life because first of all, I was on oxycotin. So I think I had to get over this addiction too. I, I you know, I was, that was horrible. Um, but I, I went through this mental, um, I don't know. I think this happens to people who come very close to dying because my doctor, the day that I left, I loved her. She said, I really think you need to realize how close you came to not making it, you know? Um, and I think she could see that I had this problem of, of, <laughs> you know, sort of suppressing a lot of stuff. She's like, you really, you might need therapy. You might need to, uh, 
you know, talk about this. And she was right. It took me that whole year was was one of just I was completely not like myself. I saw nature for the first time. I slowed down. I didn't rush in traffic. And I I've never liked poetry ever. And I'm back to the stage where I don't like it anymore, <laughs> but during that stage. So here's the funny thing, Lucy. I recovered after a year. I had a reverse colostomy and I, some, this is a terrible thing. Well, it's not terrible, but now that I'm fully recovered, sometimes I long for that year where I was just so much more peaceful and not stressed. And, you know, I thought, oh, you know, maybe I'll move to, I said to my husband, let's move to a farm or by the ocean. And he was like, Amy, you hate farms and you hate the ocean. Well, it sounds like what happened to you is what happens to so many of my patients when they face their mortality or they face a difficult diagnosis or when they just feel really sick and they're, they they realize they've taken for granted perhaps that they feel pretty well in general most days. And also to develop diverticulitis such that you perforate your bowel and you have a hole in your colon, you have to have, if I may, ignored some symptoms for a little while that maybe you reflected on as well saying, huh, maybe I should pay attention to my body, be a little more in the moment, be a little more present. Oh, the doctor, she was the, her name was Dr. Einer's daughter. She was Icelandic. She was six, five. She's my I, I, mean, I idolize her. She said just that to me. She practically had to shake me. I mean, we became friends, but she said, Amy, she was like, do you realize that you have just been incredibly stupid? You know, she was like, you almost killed yourself. Yes. <laughs> She's like, you almost killed yourself by not explaining to us, you know, how you were feeling. And she was really getting at that. Like this, this kind of stoicism of while maybe useful in some contexts, is not always a good thing. So you, you nailed it. Yeah. yeah. It's like an example of where not sort of tuning into your bodily cues and signals cost you almost your life. And, you know, I remember a couple months ago, I had to have a root canal and, you know, everyone jokes about how awful root canals are. But to me at that moment, I thought, gosh, this is so nice. Everyone's giving me like all these nice warm blankets and I don't have to answer my phone or emails. And I thought, God, this is great. And then I thought to myself, how depressing is that, that in order to slow down and give myself permission to rest and not check my emails like my type A personality wants me to all the time, um, I have to have a root canal. So I think it is good to rem remember those moments that like, like we can give ourselves permission to slow down without having a perforated colon. I know. And we could also, I mean, I wish I could get more of this. Like I wasn't allowed to have water. I, I, I had, I was allowed like tiny little bits of ice chips and I had nausea for almost two straight weeks in addition to pain that morphine would not get rid of. And so I, I, for the first time felt like, I don't know if it's worth living, you know, like, cause nausea is almost worse than pain. Like it was constant. So the day that my nausea lifted and I was allowed, I still remember my first juice. It was like, I got to have juice. It was like ecstasy. And I, I, I really did. I was like, wait a second. I have just been so taken for granted, you know, all these things. Like I can drink water. I'm allowed to drink water. <laughs> it's so, it's such a good point because, you know, we talk about gratitude all the time in this sort of passing way, like gratitude is so good for you, but, but that's what it is. It's like that, that apple juice in that moment tasted so, so incredibly nourishing and good. And it's, it's, a, it's just a good reminder to A, pay attention to your body because as you probably know, you, you, once you have diverticulitis, you, you could get it again, not in that same spot because that part of your colon is gone, but you want to pay attention um, and just tune into your body and tune into what gives you joy. Um, and, 
you know, I think I think that it's interesting to hear someone as successful, Amy, as you are and so driven had that kind of moment. It's interesting. I mean, how, how do you take care of your health now? Like, what do you do to take care of your health? Yeah. So, you know, I'm still, I think we're all works in progress. Uh, after I got better, I was hoping, and for a while there were lingering lessons. Like I was like, you know, and, and some things have never changed. Like I, 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 I'm a lot, I don't rush as much anymore. I realized why, why am I always running? Like I'm always running. I'm always late. But I'm back at Yale and it's very hard to change our personalities. You know, going back to your earlier question about the relationship between success and happiness, some of the people I admire most are people who just have, you know, an ability to be happy um, just with themselves, you know. But I think for most of us, it's a false dichotomy. That's what I wanted to say. Like during the Tiger Mom controversy, people would say, so which do you think is more important, success or happiness? And I'd say, of course, happiness. But the problem is that that's not, it's, it's, that's the easy way out. You know, like if I could have a magic button and pick either success or happiness, of course, happiness for my kids. But the problem is that in this world where you see your peers, other people are succeeding, there's a lot of pressure. I think it just is the case that the two are not unrelated. You know, if you, for example, cannot get a job, if you have no skills, that it's, it's kind of hard to be happy. You know, it's, it's, and this is the kind of the quote unquote Chinese or old style Asian way of parenting. It's like, here's what parenting is about preparing my kids for the future, you know? So, and it's a completely different mentality than a more Western framework, which is how my husband was raised, which is childhood only comes once. I want them to enjoy it. It's, you know, it's a fleeting thing. And I have very conflicted views about this because my husband's childhood was so fun. Every summer they went to this lake, they like ran around barefoot, they did nothing. For me, I was sent to computer camp. (laughs) But when I look at my family and his family, 60 years later, it's much more complicated. It's much more complicated. There are many members of his family who are not necessarily doing so well, you know, and many people in my family that had to do these terrible summers. I mean, they have, they're in a more secure place. They're happy with their careers. So, so it's just such a complicated picture. Again, we're all works in progress and I'm always trying to strike that balance. Even now my kids are grown now and every day it's still, it's still a balancing act, sometimes torture. (laughs) Let's take a quick break. Tired of wondering where to look for trusted medical information and advice? Subscribe to Dr. Lucy McBride's newsletter and wonder no more. Each week, Dr. McBride delivers real-time information about the latest medical news and guidance on how to manage your physical and mental health in tandem. Subscribe online at www.lucymcbride.com newsletter and learn the tools you need to manage your health. Again, that's www.lucymcbride.com newsletter to subscribe. Welcome back. Let's get on with the conversation. You described when you counsel your law student, for example, on working hard and you give them the tales of your rejections, you, you, you're pretty honest about vulnerability to them. Um, I mean, how, how do you describe vulnerability and how do, how do you deal with it? Because it's it's inevitable. We all have vulnerabilities, whether it's it's diverticulitis, whether it's emotional, whether it's some combination of physical and, and mental health vulnerability. Like, how do you grapple with vulnerability now that you're an adult and you've reflected so much on, on your life? You know, for me, I think it, I'm a natural 
you cannot believe how many rejections and humiliations I've had in my life. So I think I'm a natural role model because I I can just share my stories. And I keep forgetting now that people look at me and think that, you know, that I'm successful because my own self-perception of myself is somebody that has always been an outsider. I when I got to law school, I had stage fright. Um every time the professor called on me, I was frozen. I did not speak for three years. And when I tell my students this, they're at first they don't believe me. They're like, oh my God, like that's impossible. You know, you're so confident now, you know, you can't stop talking. But then I had an old friend, you know, a classmate come to be a guest lecturer and they asked him and and he, he confirmed. He was like, Oh yeah, Amy was unusually quiet. <laughs> she didn't speak. Um and and also the rejection story, you know, I was somebody I went to law school because I didn't want to go to medical school. You know, what you are, Lucy, my parents, all they ever wanted was for me to be a doctor. But I am afraid of blood and I'm not that good at math and I I, I just wasn't good at science. So it was a huge disappointment for them that I ended up going to law school. And then when I got to law school, I wasn't good at it. So I have just had a series of I don't know, just a lot of self-questioning and wrong mis- wrong moves in my life. So for me, it's really kind of a win-win when I get to share this with my students, because first it's great for me to kind of just, you know, it's cathartic to remember this, but it's also, it's good for them to hear, oh my God. So she was like this too. Maybe there's hope for me. Um, So I, that's like my favorite thing with my students, sharing stories of all of like the darker and mess up, you know, moments in my life. You've talked about the stigma around therapy in the Chinese culture. And how you've had to explain to your parents, I think, about how normal it is to address your mental health like you would, you know, any other organ system. I mean, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So the Asians are probably the worst for this. Um, you know, mental health is was just absolutely taboo um, for thousands of years. And in Asia, I think it's still like that. Same with, you know, having children with disabilities. I mean, it's very, very backwards. Um, there's a lot of shame associated with mental illness or, or disability. So the result is like, just don't talk about it. I remember, you know, my youngest sister has Down syndrome. And when she was born, my grandmother on my father's side said, let's ship her off back to the, to Asia. Nobody will have to know about it. And to my mom's credit, this is why I admire her so much. I mean, first she cried for a while because she didn't understand it, but then she just started reading books. She joined all the support groups. She learned about it. She is now like the biggest uh, advocate for children with Down syndrome. So this is like the positive side of the West. And, you know, I often say like, we should try to get the best of both worlds, you know? Um, But anyway, I just had this, it's funny that you ask about mental health and therapy because just two days ago, I taught my last class and it turns out that this is a whole immigrant thing. It's not just Asians, but many immigrant children feel that it's almost like a betrayal of their parents if they go to therapy. Because, you know, part of therapy, even if you had pretty good parents, but, you know, I'm not talking even about traumatic, bad experience. I just, I just mean pretty good immigrant parents. But part of therapy is you kind of unearth your childhood and, you know, maybe some burdens that were put on you that had some lasting effects that maybe aren't entirely good. And what the student said, it was so brave. She said, you know, it's really a struggle for me because I I love and respect my parents so much. I'm undyingly grateful. And yet having become a mental health counselor for lots of other people, I see now the importance of therapy 
And I see that this is a huge problem in immigrant communities. So yes, and I've talked about it in my own family too. When we've made progress, my parents are 85, are, are definitely, <laughs> everybody can learn. It's never too, too late to learn, but I would say it's probably, yeah, yeah. It's so important that you model that, Amy, for your students, because I do think that you can hold two things in your mind at once. You can have immense love for your parents. Um, you can also feel that there are issues in your childhood you want to work out. They're, they're not mutually exclusive. And it's so interesting you talk about the immigrant students who come to you saying that it almost feels like a betrayal of their parents, which, you know, I would say that that's a common theme I see in my patients in general or people I talk to about there. They say, well, why would I want to air my dirty laundry to someone else? Isn't that sort of, you know, not what you do? Um, and, you know, my answer is, well, it's not really about airing dirty laundry. I mean, you can do that for your with your friends. It's really about having a professional guide and place that's safe and non-judgmental to kind of work out the thoughts in your brain. I, for people who are therapy resistant or therapy hesitant, I'll liken it to going to the gym. Like you go to the gym to work out your biceps, you go to the, the therapist to work out, to build resilience, to build healthy boundaries, to, you know, grow and strengthen strong relationships and to, you know, work on controlling the things you can control and letting go of things you can't. So it's sort of like the brain trainer. You know, it's funny. I talk to different people about it in different ways, depending on their preconceived notions of therapy. But for you as a as an immigrant woman, I think it's so important that you're able to sort of destigmatize it to your students. Yeah. And I have to say, you know, I in this with that particular story, I can't even take credit for it. I mean, I do think I make the space so that in a large class of 85, somebody feels free to say that. But it was actually a, a student. She happened to be, she was actually a Cuban American who, who, who said this story. And it was actually one of the most amazing, I don't know, just pivotal moments for me teaching because, I mean, this class is called International Business Transactions, okay? We're not like, this is not psychology. But when she said that, it resonated for so many people in my class. And yeah, I, I was kind of proud of it, but proud of my student, especially for, you know, kind of being brave enough to be the first person to say that. And going full circle to what you said earlier, and, and this is one of your quotes in, in the battle hymn is, nothing is fun until you're good at it. I mean, once you have this sort of self-awareness and ability to connect the dots between your mental and physical health and then have better control over relationships and, you know, stress management skills, then 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 life can be more fun intrinsically because you don't have to be in the in the, in the sort of backseat of the bus. You can you can be in the driver's seat of your health a little bit more. Well, I have to, yeah, I like your <laughs> tweets and I'm, I've, I became a fan of yours because again, being totally honest, I am not there yet. Like I, I don't know how you can stay on Twitter. You know, like I am still. Somebody, oh God, Amy. Okay. It's, it's like, we need therapy for that alone. <laughs> exactly. I still am somebody, I, I try to project strength and confidence, but I still get cripplingly depressed uh, at criticism. And it's pretty hard because I'm a controversial person. And this is another problem. 99 things will go well in a day and one tiny bad thing will happen. And that's all I can think about, you know, or there'll be a dinner party and I'll feel like the life of the party. And the next morning I'll wake up. Oh my God. What did I say? <laughs> oh my gosh, Amy. It's so refreshing because guess what? Me too. You know, it's so funny when you talk about being the quiet kid in the class and you're Students can't believe you. I mean, I was pretty shy in my high school years. I was the president of my class or the actually the student body and, you know, an athlete and very social, but I was pretty shy and I only found my voice sort of later in life. And now I've got such a voice that like my mom and my dad and my 
husband are like, oh, my gosh, can you like turn the volume down just a wee bit? Um, but the point is that I think we're all works in progress. And, you know, I've learned so much about um, myself through, you know, relationships with other people, but also in therapy, sort of trying to understand like the way I think, the way I process the external world, trying to not be so emotionally reactive, not so hard on myself to have more self-compassion. And that's one of the things I try to help my kids with without them being so self-compassionate that they're like not trying. But I think to your point, you know, what, you know, if you look under the hood of most people's lives, which is ultimately the, 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 the most enjoyable, rewarding and fascinating part of my job you know, we're all sort of wounded animals in many ways. It's sort of like about drilling down into what someone's essence is and what their past experiences were that sort of maybe inform some of their relationships with food or alcohol or other people or even themselves that are dysfunctional. And then helping them see that from a distance and then giving them some tools. And it's not always by talking to their doctor like me. It's sometimes it's in therapy. Sometimes it's with connecting with nature. Sometimes it's with exercising. You know, I think the gift that you give to your students is not just teaching them the skills that you're teaching them in in the class, but also just mentoring them. Yeah. I think a lot of the mentoring is I don't have a solution, but it's really comforting for them to know that I have the same issue. So sometimes I feel like I live my life right now, just like periods of stress. It's like, oh my God, I've got this X big thing coming you know, talking to Dr. Lucy McBride, you know, or giving a talk. Because I'm like, oh my God, I have to talk to Amy Chua this afternoon. I've got to like, my palms are sweating and my heart's racing and oh my God. But then I get over it and then it's really fun. It's, I feel great afterwards. It's very rewarding. And, and I just need to stretch that out a little bit because I, sometimes I feel like, okay, it's like 10 days of anxiety and then it's over and it's really fun. And then a new cycle of anxiety and stress, you know? So, so my students, I talk about this, not like I have an answer, but it's just like, we're just empathetic to each other. Like, oh my God, this happens. Yeah. Well, that's it. I mean, I think we live in sort of an empathy desert and I think particularly for high achieving people and women, I would argue, and perhaps women who are children of immigrants, like self-compassion is hard to come by. And I think, you know, there's a fine line between kind of self-examination and self-indulgence. But if you can take a moment to understand like what gives you joy and pleasure that's, you know, legal um, and, and, and do more of that and not apologize for who you are all the time and not feel like a failure just because you failed. I mean, that's really the birthplace of health. And I, too, am working on it. Um, just being more in the public facing space. And you were thrust into the public space, I think, surprisingly, right? In 2011, I don't think you thought that this was going to be an international sensation. Oh, my God. No clue. I had no social media, no tools. Even my, everyone was shocked. My publisher was shocked. And See, but there I give credit going back full circle. This is the upside. I think it was the grit that my parents instilled in me, you know, through that crazy way of parenting that allowed me to not give up. I mean, there were definitely days when I was being called everything. Like one line was like the worst mother on the planet. <laughs> And even though you know that's not true, it's like the, the guy on the playground who is teasing you, you know that that is more about him than it is about you. It still hurts if you're a sensitive person. Awful, awful. And so I, yeah, but you know, I, I do, I kind of credit my parents for, for, it's kind of like, just stick it out one more day. <laughs> just, just keep going out there. We'll be taking a quick break, but stay tuned. Does your personal brand or business have a story to tell? Podcasts are a great way to build a genuine connection with your audience. 
Whether you have an existing podcast or want to start a new one, with K-Global, all you need is the drive to succeed, and we'll take care of the rest. Let's get to work. www.kglobal.com slash podcast. And we're back. I always end with one question. If you were to give one piece of mental health advice to somebody who is struggling, you know, whether it's with self-esteem or they've just been rejected from a job offer, what would you, what would you tell them? This is so cliche, but I just think that humor, laughter is, is everything. Now, of course, it's very hard if you come out and you feel so dark, but I have found in my worst moments with my kids, these fights where I felt like, oh my God, just what everything is going wrong, that somehow laughter and humor is like a release valve, you know? Um, Now, of course, that's not a very good answer because how do you, how do you get there? It is a good answer. I mean, I think levity, I think we take ourselves very seriously in this world. And I think, you know, the world is a serious place and there are a lot of serious problems, but I think when you can remind yourself that, you know, emotions pass and that, and humor can be so cathartic and healthy and also just sort of break the back of a really unpleasant feeling and moment. Yes. Oh, so I, when, when I started teaching at Yale Law School, my first year there, I was very, I was the only Asian woman, probably like there was only one woman for every 30 men. And my first month there, there was a kind of faculty photograph and they were lined up across the yard and I was late and I was kind of rushing towards them. And I tripped once, twice, and then fell flat on my face in front of these 50 faculty members of my new colleagues and it was it was one of these i it was such a traumatic memory for me for so long you know that i would cringe in the middle of just like dinner or something else but then i started telling my students the story about like 5 years ago and it's so great now now it's a funny story you know now it's this inspiring story i mean it's I, it's still cringy but now it actually serves a great purpose <laughs> i love it and i think you're just a very good example of somebody who projects to the world confidence, determination, grit, when those things are true and you have grappled with your mental health, you've grappled with your physical health, you've kind of connected the two and you're a work in progress. And that is what makes you human like all of us, whether you're born from Chinese immigrants, you are born into, you know, royalty, no matter who you are. I mean, we're all just trying to get through the day, right? Yes. Amy, thank you so much for joining me today on this Friday. I hope that you have a lovely weekend. I hope you can connect with nature like you want to. And um, I'll, I'll talk to you next time. And, and let's be in touch. Great. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you all for listening to Beyond the Prescription. Please don't forget to subscribe, like, download, and share the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you catch your podcast. I'd be thrilled if you liked this episode to rate and review it. And if you have a comment or question, please drop us a line at podcast at lucymcbride.com. The views expressed on the show are entirely my own and do not constitute medical advice for individuals. Such advice must be obtained from your personal physician. Beyond the Prescription is produced at K-Global Studios in Washington, D.C. Our music is by my incredibly creative brother, Walter Martin. On our way out, please enjoy his song, Where I Oughta Be. I don't know what's in front of me One way's home And the other's to the sea So toss a coin Put your hand in my hand Heads I follow you Tails you follow me But either
Right in front of me, so either way. 